Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome back to the important part, everybody. I have an episode for you this month on food. I like food a lot, but this is a different look at food. So we're going to talk to the CEO, president and CEO of Blue Apron on the food delivery service. I think this is a great compliment to the restaurant episode that we did a couple months ago. But Linda Findley is our guest today. Linda Findley is Blue Apron's president, chief executive officer, and a member of the company's board of directors. Before joining Blue Apron in April 2019, Linda served as chief operating officer at Etsy, where she held responsibilities for product marketing and customer engagement and acquisition. Prior to Etsy, Linda spent three years at Evernote Corporation, most recently serving as COO, where she oversaw worldwide operations, managed cross-functional teams across seven countries. Before that... Linda worked for Alibaba.com based out of Hong Kong, most recently as Director of Global Marketing and Customer Experience with worldwide responsibilities spanning multiple revenue-generating and customer-facing functions. This lady has done a lot of stuff. Linda also serves on the board of Ralph Lauren Corporation, Style Seat Inc., and Dress for Success, a not-for-profit organization focused on empowering women, which I love. With that, let's get to the interview. Linda, thank you so much for joining me today. This is going to be a great episode to release right around the holidays. Full disclosure, I've done one episode just recently with a restaurateur. Mm-hmm. So we've we've done something about the kind of going out to eat service. Now we're going to talk about the staying home to eat service. And I think it's going to be a great thing to compare and contrast. But again, thank you so much for being here. This is going to be great. And I'm really excited for all of our listeners. Excellent. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So you joined Blue Apron in April 2019. Correct. Now for the purposes where we're going to talk about what happened during the pandemic and what happened after the pandemic, your timing was was excellent because you saw the whole thing from start to finish and then the after effects. But why don't we start with how COVID affected the business model? I mean, like many industries, I can imagine that it had a huge impact on activity at Blue Apron, activity during the pandemic, post the pandemic, and probably how you approach consumers um, from now until forever, right? So give us a little lens into to how the pandemic affected the business. Well, there were really two sides about how the pandemic affected the business. The first is we did see a very fast, very aggressive spike in demand. So you saw a lot of people all of a sudden at home needing to think about meal solutions, needing to think about how to keep variety and and safety at the same time in their homes. And so you did see a very fast spike in demand, but then there's the flip side of it, which is in a physical products business, you can't just manifest the food. You know, you you have to be able to source that and and the farmers and everyone else was experiencing all the same things when it came to COVID. And so in that way, we actually saw quite a bit of challenge when it came to both our labor force, who was subject to, you know, frontline workers who were trying to come in and and actually 
fulfill boxes. You know, we were worried about their safety. So we actually did quite a bit to really buckle down on safety and make sure that people were safe, which meant that we couldn't fulfill all of that demand because between supply chain issues and labor issues, we just needed to keep our people safe. I want to talk about the inflation piece of it. But since you mentioned the employees, let's talk about that just for a second. So the availability of labor force, and this is something that I talk about constantly as a macro strategist, I'm talking about labor dynamics, the fact that right now we have a labor market that is still overly tight, Mm -hmm. way too many jobs, not enough people, but people don't seem to be coming back into the labor force. So as we sort of transitioned through the pandemic, what happened in a lot of industries was Although the world started to reopen, we did not have enough people to fill the businesses, right? So even companies like coffee shops, you you could go to a coffee shop, but there were Starbucks around the country that were closing early during a day because they didn't have staff to actually work. So tell us about what that was like for employees, because I imagine you have warehouses where you're filling the boxes. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know how the the supply chain works from there, how the delivery service works from there, but what was it like and did it hinder what you could actually provide to your customers? Well, we had most of our labor challenges during the pandemic when people were having to stay home and, and had maybe irregular schedules. They had kids sent home from schools, et cetera. Then we very proactively worked with our employee base to think about their needs and and what was going to best engage them. So we actually did a lot of proactive things around increasing our base salary before our base pay for our hourly workers before it was actually part of the inflationary environment. Okay. Making sure people had health care, making sure people had um, access to different benefits. And so we actually did a lot of that during the pandemic before inflation even really kicked in, which actually helped us as things started to reopen. Yeah. That being said, I do think there was a bit of an interesting challenge in the broader industry because while things reopened, it wasn't consistent. It wasn't predictable. I do think that there has been a little bit of a challenge from a labor standpoint because part of what keeps the system going is predictability. Yeah. And so while hybrid work is great for knowledge workers, when it comes to actual in-person working, if schools aren't on a regular schedule or activities aren't on a regular schedule, it's much harder to get people physically into a business. And that's where I think it starts to get a lot more challenging post-pandemic world. And that's good insight. And, And one of the things, just to fast forward now to today, I think we're going through a little bit of a transition. I don't think we're there yet, but I'd I'd welcome your feedback on this. So for a while, it had been an employee's market, meaning there were so many jobs available yeah. and jobs that before the pandemic, you could make X amount of dollars as a salary or an hourly wage. Now, post-pandemic, same job, you can make X plus 20%, right? right. Or, or whatever the case may be. So employees were looking around And they had a lot of options and there's measures that in the economy that we look at and it's basically how confident are you that if you leave your job, you'll find another one. People have been pretty confident that they would find another job. So there hasn't been a lot of apprehension. Now I think we're probably maybe at the very beginning of that shifting or maybe that force relaxing a little bit in the sense of if employees lose their job, maybe jobs aren't quite as available as before, or maybe they're not quite as available in certain industries. So do you have any sense at this point that it's easier to retain employees or that you have to, you still have to try as hard to retain them would be the first question. And if you are hiring, is it as hard to find new ones? I think it's a little bit of an interesting conundrum across the board. So 
at least what I see and what I tend to focus on is it isn't just about retaining employees. It's do you have the right talent for what you need in the right activities? Mm. And mm-hmm. that is, you're, you are always going to see a war for really great talent when it comes to the industries that we're all in. And I actually think that becomes even more of an employee's market, frankly, in downturns because the really, really excellent employees are worth significantly more. In other words, they are able to contribute more, et cetera. And so I think part of what you're going to see and what you continue to see and frankly what we see is fewer team members as you're condensing down, as you see inflation, how do you get to fewer, more efficient employees that you can then pay and compensate better Mm -hmm. in order to try to retain them? And so it creates a very unique dynamic where there's, I still think we're in a world where it's not necessarily as much of an employee's market as it was before, Mm -hmm. but for really top level talent, it's still very easy for them to find other alternatives. And that's where I think you're seeing more of that war for talent kind of coming into as in a very senior place, whereas maybe a year ago, it was more about just get bodies into the room and and try to get as many people as possible. Okay. All right. So there's, I have, I have so many questions that could come off of that, but I want to make sure that I get to the inflation part of the actual food. So because this is something that everybody listening has been impacted by and, and just kind of a funny anecdote. I mean, I, I look at inflation data from top to bottom, right? I dig into it and figure out what's going up, what's not going up. And for a while we had this situation where you would have a, a certain component of inflation that rose, but it was this like whack-a-mole. Yeah. So you'd have one component that rose, and then when that one relaxed, something else popped up, right? And I remember one yes. one month there was when food inflation started to really get higher, there was, I think, frankfurters were the only thing that didn't inflate. And it was like, well, every, you'd be okay if you just eat a diet rich in hot dogs, right? <laughs> but obviously most people aren't going to do that. So when you're running a business like Blue Apron, where you've got, I know you've got a number of different subscription models. You can do, you know, however many frequencies per week you want to in deliveries. But part of your tagline is that you use seasonal ingredients. You're probably Mm -hmm. offering sort of themed recipes. Yes. And if you're doing that, you need specific, the substitution isn't quite as easy. How did you manage through that? And did consumers react to it in an okay fashion. And what I mean by that is if you had to start limiting the types of recipes because of the cost, were people amenable to that or were they upset? Just any lens that you have into how that started to affect you. Sure. It's actually a really interesting discussion and talks a lot about the food industry and the sourcing models itself in the food industry. So one of the benefits of meal kits as a business is they tend to be higher margin than than grocery stores because of the fact that you can reduce waste. Uh, and this is something that people don't often think about with meal kits, is they think about the fact that it's great that they only get what they need in their home so you don't wind up with a refrigerator full of rotting carrots because you overbought carrots in some moment of inspiration. Yeah, but, your, your um, carrot so, eyes were bigger than your stomach. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. But so that's definitely the first part of it. However... Where you also see reduced waste is actually in the supply chain. So we also only buy what we need. Okay. And that means we have very little food waste in our supply chain, which allows us to create better pricing, allows us to keep costs down, et cetera. Would you call that 
kind of a just-in-time inventory model? Kind of. It's actually staggered. So proteins, we're able to source pretty far in advance and use long-term contracts with, which helps us keep the contracts and the pricing reasonable. Okay. Then as you get into things like what we call produce, dry, and dairy. So there's produce, there's dry, which is like flowers, et cetera. Obviously, those can be sourced in advance. And then there's dairy, which is milks, butters, cheeses, et cetera. The produce and the dairy obviously need to be more just in time because you want the freshest Mm -hmm. possible on the most perishable items. So we are able to plan out because of the fact that we use this direct sourcing model, we're able to plan out pretty far in advance and make sure we're locking in the availability of ingredients at the best possible pricing that is usually better than the producer's price index that you'll see reports on. Just reported today, actually. Exactly. Fun Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Then you layer on the fact of, yes, that we do have seasonal ingredients. We're known for variety. Our customers want to see new, new recipes every week, and we need to constantly be changing that and take advantage of the most seasonal produce. We do occasionally have to do swaps, Sometimes because of price, but actually more often because we didn't see the quality we wanted in an ingredient that came in. So we don't often have to swap on proteins because of that planning model. What about when the war erupted between Ukraine and Russia? There was a lot of conversation about Ukraine being the breadbasket and grains not as available. Did you were you affected by that or was that was it far enough away, far enough removed that it didn't affect you? Only slightly. I mean, everybody's always impacted by the overall change in prices. Honestly, food inflation has two different aspects to it, regardless of where you are. There's the price of the food itself. And so, yes, there was some impact from wheat shortages, et cetera. But we were able, again, to manage that fairly effectively through our sourcing structure. The other big factor in food pricing is really actually about fuel. It's about the transportation Um, to get the food to you. mm -hmm. And people don't often think of that together. When gas prices were at their highest, you were really looking at double impact on food because it's not just the food itself, it's the transportation to get the food to Mm -hmm. you. And in many cases, the inflation you were seeing was actually higher in the fuel prices than it was in the food itself, but it still blended together to cause challenges. This is why, again, a tight, very, very direct sourcing model like ours, where there's not as many middlemen in the process, is a critical aspect to making sure that you can manage that effectively. Okay. So you mentioned before, and this this kind of ties into the inflation question. I want to hear about how you've passed inflation through, if you've had to pass it through and, and how that's been absorbed. I think at this point, there's a lot of people that are still absorbing it decently well. And I say that because I, I mentioned earlier in the episode that I had a, a restaurant tour on, and he made the point that full service restaurants weren't really suffering yet from inflation pass-throughs because if they increase the cost of sangria on the menu by $1, nobody really noticed. And especially somewhere like New York City, sangria went from $16 to $17. I didn't notice that. I already thought it was expensive. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but they make a lot on just that one tiny little increase, but it didn't slow down their business. It didn't slow down foot traffic. And it really has benefited the full-service restaurants. When you move down the profitability line or maybe down the cost structure, that's where restaurants started to suffer. So to the extent that you've had to pass it through to customers, what has that looked like? Are there certain categories you've passed it through more on? Has it been pretty painless to pass it through or has there been a reaction? So we've actually done two price changes in the last year, which are the only price changes the company has ever done. And the first one was last year where we actually 
added a shipping charge. We were the only kit that, that oh, did okay. not charge for shipping. And, and so we started charging for shipping. And that was really around fuel and logistics inflation. Yeah. And then we did another price increase earlier this year that was really about food inflation. So that was about the cost of the core ingredients. The interesting aspect of both of those cost changes and both of those pricing changes is between the two of them, in total, we are still the same or cheaper than any of our other competitors on pricing with higher quality ingredients. Okay. So even though we did have to pass through some pricing changes, we were able to keep them relatively modest because of the fact that we're able to source below the producer's price index for higher quality ingredients. And by the way, the interesting tidbit related to your other broadcast that you're talking about is we tend to source like from a restaurant quality supply chain because we are sourcing these higher quality proteins, higher quality seafood, et cetera. So we've been able to manage some of that cost. Yes, we've had to pass it through, but From what we can tell as we start evaluating different recipes across different parts of the United States and looking at prices in different grocery markets around the the country, we're able to keep our cost to the customer the same or lower than what they're seeing even in the grocery store because of the fact that we're able to reduce the waste in our model and we're able to, to source in bulk and source such high quality ingredients. So there, you know, of course, consumers react a certain extent because everyone's feeling the pinch right now, but we didn't see any appreciable change in consumer behavior when we were testing as we were rolling out these prices. Mm -hmm. In general, I think you're just seeing consumers more price sensitive overall, but it wasn't necessarily a dollar for dollar once the price changed. It wasn't like they abandoned ship. Yeah. No. It's, you know, people know that food is getting more expensive. I think what we're trying to do is make sure they're seeing the maximum value in the box by the highest quality food for better prices than what they could get elsewhere. Well, and I would imagine, and and this this isn't even a question, it's really just more me kind of musing about it, but I would imagine a lot of consumers, because we're so aware of inflation being out there and being in the system, we might not like it. If the price increases or if if I'm a Blue Apron subscriber and I get an email that says, we've really enjoyed providing this shipping cost free for so long, but the reality is that, you know, the way that costs have gone and I mean, the prices of container ships, I used I put charts out about that. It was obnoxious, like astronomical of how high things got. But you get an email like that and maybe it's disappointing, but you get it right? You understand why and it makes sense. I think where consumers start to get really frustrated is if they see a price increase that doesn't really make sense or then then they start to judge. And and this is interesting. They start to judge how well the business is being run. Well, why are you increasing the cost for me? Maybe you should just manage the business better, right? It's your inventory problem. This isn't for me to suffer from. But in this environment, because inflation has been so widespread, across so many different industries, so many different products, every store has been hit. I mean, dollar stores became the not dollar stores anymore, right? So exactly things like that, where I think people sort of understood there's it at some point, if it eats too much into the consumer's bottom line, that's where spending broadly gets hit. So the, the other question I had on this was you mentioned that margins for a company like Blue Apron are bigger, they're wider than they would be for grocery delivery. Margins have been a huge story this year because profit margins are at record highs. So that's how a lot of people have explained away the idea that businesses and the corporate earnings have still held up because margins were so high. So they've been able to absorb some of these increased labor costs and increased inflation costs. What does that look like 
for you, I, understanding that you can't give us anything that you haven't already reported. So we'll we'll say, you know, from the end right. of the third quarter or, or whatever is is okay for you to tell us about. But what's the margin story for you and how are you protecting those margins into 2023? So I think in general, the, what creates margin benefit in the meal kit industry is scale. So we are still at a point where we have opportunity to drive more scale in our business. So we're still working on that and getting there. This year has been a difficult year from a margin perspective because of the confluence of the food inflation, logistics inflation, marketing inflation, all of that coming together Mm -hmm. at the same time. That being said, we actually are starting to see now with, with implementations of what we've done across our operations, our margins coming back up because now we're actually better able to manage some of that labor and efficiency, et cetera. We're a seasonal business, as most meal kits are, where you tend to see your worst margins during the summer months because that's when you're putting more ice in the box. You're, you have to keep the food safe in hotter temperatures, and so that's always our lowest margin quarter, which is Q3. But in general using some of those direct sourcing things that I was talking about before, we're actually now able to start to see that margin recover and come back together by using efficiencies across both the labor, logistics, and food supply chains. So the long-term at-scale margin opportunity is better. That doesn't mean there's not pain points in the road in getting there. So safe to say that you've done a, a better job at managing the business and been able to protect margins that way through this year, but it also sounds like you haven't necessarily suffered on volume. So consumers aren't exiting and you, it hasn't changed too much. The landscape hasn't changed too much that they're not buying this anymore, downshifting to a point that it's affecting your top line. So what we've seen is there is a softness in consumer behavior that we've seen across every category, but it is related to macroeconomic yep. factors, less so than the product itself or... When do you feel like that started? with a weakness. It started probably in Q2, mid Q2 is when we started to see most of the concerns start. And we've talked about this publicly a few times where we did start to see a bit of a softness in acquisition as people were just not sure of what was Mm going to happen next. What we have continued to see though is strength in retention, strength in the core customer base. And we continue to try to think of new ways to add Mm -hmm. value for individual users. A good example, which is we actually launched right at the beginning of COVID, obviously not intentionally timed with COVID, but we launched a premium menu. Okay. And that's duck, scallops, lamb. There's, you know, yeah. really fancy we're, stuff. We're all, all, all of our meals are restaurant quality meals, but like these are more date night meals or restaurant substitute yep. meals, which people are very excited about because they're seeing the value in, oh, I can create a special night out, but actually yep. in using some of these ingredients. And with all those changes we've done that have happened throughout the pandemic and then beyond, we've actually been able to raise our average order value, our average revenue per customer by you know 25 to 30% over the last two to three years by adding some of these options for people who might be looking for different value services within the meal kit. Do you think that's because, and I wonder if there's regional differences to this too, but do you think that's because people, some people never got as comfortable again going out to eat? I'm in New York City. I ride the subway all the time, but I know that there are still people who aren't comfortable yet, even though it's been back open and running and, and there's many people who ride it. Some some just never got back to that place where it feels okay to do that. Do you think that Blue Apron or the similar businesses benefited from that sort of permanent fear, permanent fear of, of being back out in public spaces? 
There's, I do see a little bit of that. It's interesting because I'm also a subway writer and, you know, it's just, it is to me the best way to get around Manhattan. But I do see a lot of people who, even if it's not a fear, sometimes it's a little bit of a, Mm -hmm. is it even worth it? Like, is it worth the hassle to go out? And, And that's a little bit of a different question. What we're seeing in the industry is we are seeing spend out of home on food going up but that's because people are going out less frequently, but spending more okay. each so time they more go special, out. So it's more of a special, it's, yeah, it's a special event. It's, yeah, it's mm-hmm. more of a special occasion. Obviously, prices are going mm-hmm. up everywhere, so you're going to be spending more no matter what. But you start to see people saying, okay, I'm going to go out only maybe twice a week instead of mm-hmm. three or four times a week if they did before. Because it's not just a, I don't want to cook and I want to go out. It's actually, yeah. this is an occasion. It's not a convenience thing. It's an occasion. And so we're st- that's part of the reason we're starting to bring some of these premium options and some of these more unique and seasonal options and even our special occasion boxes into home cooking because people are eating out less frequently but spending more when they do go out. And when you're home, you can just keep your stretchy pants on and have your dinner. Exactly. <laughs> that's part of exactly. it, right? It's like, oh, it's this big special event, but that means I have to actually get dressed and I have to, I have to look presentable. <laughs> Let's be honest, the definition of what looks presentable has also changed quite a bit. <laughs> I know. It's different. It's different. Yeah, we need, a, we need a retailer on here to talk about this too. <laughs> well, Linda, thank you so much. This has been absolutely, I mean, it's been really interesting for me, but thank you so much for sharing your insight. I think that this, like I said, complements the restaurant, the eating out episode really well too. And it's good to hear that people are are still, they have an appetite, no pun intended, for exactly. things like Blue Apron and and that there've been so many businesses kind of born out of the pandemic that just accelerated their adoption because of that. So some good things did come out of this whole experience. But thank you, Linda, for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that was wonderful. Some of the nuggets of information that she gave that I thought were really interesting. It's, I mean, it's always interesting to hear from a CEO and how they're running their business, especially one that is obviously directly impacted by inflation and directly impacted by activity during and after the pandemic. But some of the stuff that I found really interesting, so obviously they saw aggressive spikes in demand during the pandemic, but then being able to navigate it afterwards. And we're hearing a lot right now about companies, particularly retail companies, and the either mismanagement or good management of inventory. So Linda talked a lot about how they're able to manage inventory, so to speak, by matching it as the demand comes in and able to kind of reduce waste on their end. So I found that really interesting. The other thing that I found interesting about what she said, also I think important for management of a business, particularly in this environment, is when we talked about the labor market and making sure that you have the right talent for your needs. And, you know, that's probably a lot of the big mismatch that we're seeing right now with so many jobs open uh, and not enough people to fill them. The question usually ends up being, well, what about the people who are still unemployed? Why is it so difficult for them to find a job? And it might just be that there's a lack of a fit. So if there's companies that have certain needs for employees and there's not a lot of employees offering those particular expertise, uh, she actually expects that the job market stays tight for executive level or top level talent and actually weakens below that. So 
I thought her comments were really, really well thought out. I thought that she gave us some good insight, uh, as I mentioned in the episode, as a contrast to the full service kind of out to eat food service. And it's good to hear that that people are still staying home and doing special stuff at home and buying some of those specialty meal kits that are the, the restaurant at home. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I hope everyone enjoyed that. And I look forward to getting the next episode out to you very, very soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at SoFi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Adam Raimonda, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.